Welcome to Remotely Creative, a RimCAD podcast where we talk to artists, designers, and wildcards about how they're surviving in the era of COVID-19 isolation. I'm Rob Fladry, and with me today is Frankie Tone. Frankie is an artist who works mostly with craft and DIY materials and techniques to create large, plush sculptures, interactive works, and installations. Well, Frankie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on the Zoom podcast. Yeah, we're not sponsored by Zoom, so we try to we try to keep them the, out of this. No, right, exactly. <laughs> that Zoom the is how the unnamed... world works. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Zoom just seemed the easiest way to to be able to connect with everyone while we we're recording this podcast. So yeah, um, it's a crazy time out there. Quarantine, a lot of other stuff going on. Obviously, how's life treating you? What a question. <laughs> what a what a beginning question. Um, life is, you know, it's definitely interesting right now. And I feel very plugged in, I guess I'll say. Um, you know, I'm consuming media more than I have in a really long time. I'm listening to books and podcasts and I'm in a reading group and I'm reading other things and I, you know, the radio all the time. So, um, going to protests, listening to speakers, you know, all of those things. So I, I think I'm in a mode of just kind of like taking things in right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> I, I One day at a time, one day at a time. I expect the the lizard people to come out tomorrow or the aliens to land something something's gonna happen we'll get there but you know yeah. we're, we're gonna make it through this the world's gonna be a better place i know it we're gonna take some things seriously that we've probably been overlooking um both with health and racial relations and i i think we're we're moving in the right direction well it's gonna be bumpy on the mm -hmm. way yes yeah yeah, so you're you're going to protest. Are you wearing a mask when you go to protest? Yeah, I am wearing a mask a lot of the time. Um, I have a assistant, Gabe, who comes to my studio, and even she's and I are wearing masks in the studio when we're together, even though there's a fan and there's not really a door nor really a ceiling. So there should be some good airflow, but. Um, I am going to see my parents in about a week and we're all trying to be very safe and the protests definitely wearing a mask at those for sure. Good. Yeah. That, that's always my worry with our, with our students and anyone else. You know, I, I want them to definitely go to the protest and participate, but I want them to be safe because we don't know what's out there. Totally. And, you know, a good resource now is the Pepsi Center is doing free COVID testing. So I'm planning to get tested in a couple of days. I started going to protests, gosh, I guess like three weeks ago now. So I don't seem, I don't think I have COVID now, but I'll, it's nice. It's a nice resource to get to go to the Pepsi Center. Yeah, definitely. Um, I live in Lakewood and there's uh, Wheat Ridge it's where I walk my dogs every morning. So I, I see people starting to line up in the morning. So yeah, um, you've been making masks in your studio, right? I have. Yes. A lot of them. <laughs> yeah. A lot of masks. I, uh, I started making masks, I think in early March because a friend of mine is a nurse at Denver health. Um, and she was just, Talk, telling me about the, the lack of PPE for all of the folks in her job um, and, and, you know, started sending me research about what this was before the CDC had recommended cloth masks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started making some for her so that she could kind of pair them with another mask. And it ended up being that she wasn't allowed to wear them at the hospital. Um, but then things kind of just that got the ball rolling. And then I um, started some conversations with Louise Marcherano from Redline and uh, Laura Schill and Nicole Banowitz, who are also artists making masks. And we started making masks uh, through Redline for 
local places. Um, so RTD drivers, local homeless shelters, and, and a host of other places have received masks from this like artist task force at this point. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a really nice way to connect with people at the beginning of this whole thing. And, you know, not really seeing people or having too much connection. It was a nice way to talk about things and do something together. Yeah, it's crazy that it's been three months. Yeah, it feels, you know, I've been thinking a lot about time recently and it no one knows, when, no one knows what time is anymore. <laughs> you know, I feel very connected to time in a way that I didn't before because I think it's like my, on my own terms. Mm -hmm. um, I, for the first time, I'm rarely setting alarms and I wake up when I wake up and that tends to be between seven and eight in the morning, which is when I would set an alarm for anyway. Um, and I, you know, I think I... I felt really connected to the changing of the seasons. Like when we started this, it was the end of winter and it is summer <laughs> and it's, uh, it's wild to, to have gone through those seasonal changes. And I feel extremely lucky to have been able to pay attention to them in a way that I never have before. Yeah. It's like 95 today. So. <laughs> I just walked from my studio to my house and I'm, I've, my back is sweaty for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the warmth is nice, but then I'm like, ah, I wish it was still snowing. But then when it snowed, I'm like, I can't wait till it gets warm. So I'm just never yes. happy. So yeah. <laughs> and it's just Colorado. Thousand. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you've had a, you had a lot of exhibitions planned for and scheduled for 2020. What's going on with that? Good question. I am still sending out some of those emails like, what's going on? Um, many things have been postponed, some of them with loose, uh, you know, postponements till next year, some of them kind of indefinitely. So, and then I am still getting, you know, emails asking me to be part of projects, but then a month later are postponed. <laughs> right. So um, I think that people, all the folks I know who are curators or who have a space or who, you know, are involved in different festivals that might chart or whatever, no one really has control over those timelines. Um, so yeah, so I've got an installation. Turns out this is a, a great place to have an installation right now, the storeroom on 17th. Um, and Vine, that uh, space, Brendan Picker, who curates that space, asked me to do an installation there last summer. And that's still going to happen in August. And what a perfect space. You don't have to go into it. Um, so I'm working on that right now. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You, people still get to experience it, see the art, and don't have to worry too much. I mean, you're still right. going out in the world, but it's August. Right. I think I think we'll be... I'm knocking on lots of doors right now. I'm like, I think we'll be okay. Um, Who knows? Yeah, the whole postponement, we're, you know, we postponed our graduation ceremony that was supposed to happen in May. We don't know when we're going to be able to do that. People right. keep asking me and I'm like, I don't know when we'll ever be able to have 500 plus people, you know, in it on campus at one time sitting close right. to each other. Right. So we'll see. I think people understand. It's frustrating with everything that's going on, but I think for the most part, people do understand. Yeah, and I, I also hope I've had some really interesting conversations about how to make changes in the art world to accommodate the situation that we're in. So I think in, in some ways, at least as an exercise for imagination, a, a lot will hopefully come out of this. Um, well, I mean, a lot is going to come out of this regardless of whether no we hope it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I'm, I hope there are some positive changes to how we see art in the world. Yeah. So, t you know, we're living through a new normal. I hate that, I hate that term, but I guess it is a reality. It is a new normal right now. Um, is that, 
impacting the the interactive nature of your work at all? Oh yeah, I mean, there's pe- people don't want to interact. <laughs> um, you know, even with the masks, the the processes that we go through to sanitize, keep everything safe from me making it to somebody wearing it um, is they're not extensive, but there is this feeling of like, almost like washing every part of yourself out of something, um, which is some, you know, something in my work, I'm usually trying to put as much of myself into it. So uh, yeah, it definitely is things have really changed. And I was installing a show with an art collective that I'm part of called Secret Love Collective uh, just the past couple of weeks at the McNichols Civic Center building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we usually there's eight of us all kind of on top of each other doing these installations. And we really could only have three or so people working at a time. We had to completely change our whole way of working. And it, uh, you know, it's a bummer. Cause I think there was a lot of joy in our process before that we had to, you know, kind of take out in some ways. Yeah. It, it becomes more institutionalized when you, you have formal rules to, uh, ab- ab- abide by granites for safety. And yeah, there's well, I think <laughs> there's also something sad about, um, the, the inherent distrust of one another that we have right now, that's not, you know, coming from a place of thinking that somebody is intentionally going to harm us, but just that we're being told constantly to be wary of all other people. And I think that that is, that takes a toll, especially when working collaboratively. Totally. So tell us a little bit more about the Secret Love Collective for those of us who don't know what it's about. Sure. We have a a really nicely worded mission statement on our website that I am not going to remember off the top of my head. Um, but you our website, website is, address? Website yes, address? it is. You wanna... It is secretlovecollective.com. Nice. Um, and I'm sure the mission statement is, there's probably an about us page or a mission statement page or read about us page. But um, basically, we're a collective of local Denver-based creative folks um, from all kind of different creative backgrounds. And we get together and do collaborative, usually event-based and community-based installations. Um, All of us are queer identified artists and we try to make work that talks about queerness, but also makes space for queerness through the events that we host. And there's a lot of usually interactive dance parties and things like that that go along with the installations. Awesome. Awesome. So are you still doing queer gardening? Hi, I am doing all of the gardening um, <laughs> in my own garden and in my studio. And that is uh, really the body of work that I'm working on right now is this um, exploration into queer gardens and, you know, what that means kind of. Awesome. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about the connectivity of a garden ecosystem as a metaphor for queerness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I first started researching this, there were, you know, a, a Google search of queer gardens will bring up a couple of things. Um, and one, there's an article called Queer Undergrowth by Jay Crowley that really stuck with me that talks about Um, the weeds or the unplanned versions, parts of a garden, the volunteers that just kind of pop up, um, being a site of queerness. And, you know, nobody asked for that dandelion to be there, but by its own will, it's there. Um, And so, you know, I am thinking about that, thinking about what is our relationship to how we plan gardens or how we landscape, if you will. Um, that was landscaping in air quotes. Um, and, and thinking about, you They're know, very what nice are, air quotes, by the way, <laughs> think, <laughs> practiced, um, I, you know, and so thinking about the connections between what we plan for or the, the human will that we impose on a, on a piece of land versus the piece of land's own kind of agency. 
And then also thinking about the interspecies relationships of gardens. So how, how humans are interacting with the vegetables, which are interacting with the bacteria in the soil, which are interacting with the worms and the other bugs and the sunlight and all of those things. So thinking about, you know, radical forms of relationships that are not just human based um, and also kind of create these ecosystems of care. That's awesome. I, I bought like 600 earthworms on Amazon once. And How did that go? It was great. Um, I need, and I've got dogs barking as usual. Um, I, I bought all these worms because we had a garden that um, the soil had never been tilled at our old house. Mm-hmm. And I just bought all these worms, stuck them in there, and then it self-tilling. Yeah. It was great. Amazon. Worms on Amazon. Who knew? That's, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know you could get live things shipped through Amazon. Yeah. Um, It's like prime delivery, two days, box with uh, padding on it. And yeah. I bought ladybugs from a garden store because ladybugs will often, you know, they will eat your pests, other pests. Mm -hmm. But that, Worms via mail. It, it works great. Yeah, I like the whole idea of of this gardening is is thinking through the, the queer gardening, getting helping you through our current times by any? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of those, so a book that I'm reading right now is called Garden Land, and it's, um, you know, I'm sure the author would say this better, but it's sort of a survey of how gardening and specifically garden writing has functioned through American history and, and has helped create what we think of today as the garden in American culture. Um, and it's, you know, it's incredibly academic, but also incredibly um, a, a fruitful source of information for me right now because one of the the points that she, the author brings up is the relationship between work and play in the garden is a is a big part of gardening i think that a lot of similarly to making art i think for a lot of people gardening you can see the fruits of your labor so you put in this physical work and then you receive this bounty um, through all of these you know different processes which I think is really similar to art making, um, especially the type of art making that I do, which is very, you know, craft based, DIY based. Um, So gardening has definitely gives me sort of that lens back to my practice as well. But more than that, I think it also really makes me call into question a fraught relationship in my art making, which is the relationship to commerce or capital. And you know, how do you make it as a self-employed full-time artist, which is kind of a question that I ask myself all the time and have been for the past three years. And I think that same question is often asked about gardening. Um, and so it, you know, it has kind of let me explore those murky relationships as well. Um, and I will say it also has really made me conscious of the how the time has passed during quarantine again because at the beginning my partner um used to be a commercial farmer and so she has a lot of background in how to grow things and pretty much all of my skill in growing anything comes from her knowledge Um, but you know usually in late February, early March, we're starting our seeds indoors. So we were just starting all of those things when quarantine happened and really being able to see the seeds sprout and the temperatures change and the soil loosen and all of those things. Um, I, it was, like I said earlier, it was a gift to be able to pay attention to those things. Well, that's awesome. What's your favorite thing to grow? Oh gosh, you know. Pop quiz. I, <laughs> I I think I would have to have a couple different categories. We have a vegetable garden that is just so wonderful because it's it's great to be able to bring well re, 
recently. We've, we've brought one salad to one potluck with <laughs> six people. Um, but it was really, it's always just so fun to be able to say everything that you're eating is from the garden. So I really enjoy radishes because they're an early spring vegetable. Um, lettuce, similarly. But things like squash, I love because they the leaves get so big and they grow so fast and you can see the growth every day. Um, and that to me is really rewarding. But this year, I also took on growing flowers for the first time. Awesome. So I've uh, really enjoyed trying to learn how to grow some flowers. Very cool. Our, our garden consists of strawberries and catnip because mm -hmm. those just keep coming back every year and uh, <laughs> don't have any more room because the strawberries and catnip just take over everything so exactly but those at least are two two good plants if you're gonna have something take over yeah. except unless your squirrels our squirrels ate our strawberries this year before we could get them we haven't had any squirrels. There's some like rabbits, bunny rabbits that are always in the backyard, but we've got two dogs and a cat. So they, they do a good job of running them off. So. Yeah, that's true. I can't believe how much water the strawberries take. Like, yeah, that is, that's definitely something that I'm also very cognizant of. We don't have any kind of watering, like self-watering irrigation. So we water every evening and it has become at the be you know in the beginning of the season it's like takes about 15 minutes and now it's it's almost an hour long chore every day because yeah. everything yeah. is growing and needs a lot mm -hmm. and it's been so dry we haven't had much precipitation at all we it's been listed in the news like it's gonna rain all week and <laughs> rain it all and, <laughs> yeah know. We, we have the uh, rain collection barrel, which is now legal in uh, Colorado and Denver, thankfully. Nice. Um, yeah. But uh, you, you get like, it's like a 50-gallon barrel or drum or whatever, and you can get like two waters out of it after a big rainstorm. Yeah. That's it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I used to live in the southeast, and the water there is, it's unrelenting. There, it's just water all the time and it the air is full of water you know um so gardening there is also really different than gardening here for sure yeah where did you live i lived in richmond virginia for oh, okay. four or so years i finished school at uh, vcu nice. and then i lived in tennessee for a year before coming to denver what part of tennessee that's where mm -hmm. i'm from Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you're going to laugh then. I lived in Gatlinburg okay. um, for one year while I was doing a residency at Airmont School of Arts and Crafts. Nice. Yeah. yeah Gatlinburg. Pigeon yeah. Fish, White Trash Times Square is what I call that. <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. It is. Uh, what a place. I... Yeah, I, I will forever be grateful for spending a year there. And it was also a, a, a challenging year, we'll say. I am, I do not doubt that one bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Tennessee and then lived in Florida. I have a lot of friends that went to VCU. It's, a, it's an amazing school, so. Yeah, yeah. Where did you live in Tennessee? Um, I, right outside of Nashville. Um, okay. my hometown is Clarksville, Tennessee, which is right on okay. the border up there, uh -huh. um, like 40 minutes, uh, North of, yeah. of Nashville. So, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, Tennessee is also obviously a very varied state living on the most Eastern side. I only, I think I've only, I've only spent like an afternoon in Nashville okay. and it was, it felt so completely different. Yeah, the, the state's basically divided into three different parts, you know, east, west, and middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. they they all have their personalities. So Yeah. 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 East East Tennessee, that's that's something. But uh Yeah. I mean it was it was great in the sense that I got to hike in the Smoky Mountains almost mm -hmm. it was my doorbell. Um <laughs> the I, yeah, I hiked almost every day or went for a run in the park and 
also the history and the history of craft there is really phenomenal, um, which was something that I thoroughly enjoyed. I think the hardest part was just the socializing because it's a tourist town. Nobody lives in Gatlinburg. I was literally, this was potentially a, a socially low part of my life, but I was looking on Craigslist for friends. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, Ads I, for friends. <laughs> yeah, I, I lived um, in New Jersey right outside of Philadelphia for a year. And mm -hmm. uh, this is pre Craigslist, but there was there was other places I was looking for friends. And it, it, I didn't know anyone besides my roommate. And that's, you know, it's it's yeah. hard. It's tough. Yeah. 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 I lived with four other artists in a house at this school of crafts that mm -hmm. had, you know, only had people, there was like the workshop season, but other than that, it was not a lot of people on campus. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. I definitely uh, lost myself a little bit in that year. I worked in the studio just probably like some days, like 16 hours a day. Did you just live off saltwater taffy? Is that? <laughs> Uh, not, not the taffy, but I will say one of the things that you could do is, uh, moonshine tastings. Mm -hmm. So you could go down the strip and you could get free tastings at every moonshine distillery or whatever they called them. And, uh, it, I mean, that was all you would, that was all the booze you would need to drink in one night. And, and you cleaned out your system, I'm sure. <laughs> and made you feel horrible the next day. <laughs> you know, they don't make it in radiators like they used to, but they put in some antifreeze or something just to make it taste, oh, taste like that. It's, yeah, ridiculous. Well, that's awesome. So uh, queer theory has always been a starting point for you and your work. How does Pride Month play a, a role in your life? Yeah, how does Pride Month? I mean... Um, let's see. I think one way I could answer that is Pride Month is, you know, I, I love parades. I love the parade as an art form and as a, um, you know, a moving public art display. I think if there was anything that I could add into my life, it would be more parades. Um, and that that's one thing I miss from the South is that the South, there are parades for everything. Every graduation has its own parade with its own amazing marching band and all that stuff. Um, so I, I do love that about Pride Month. I also think that in, in some ways and some parades and some places, there's an amazing amount of self-expression that can be had. I do think that the corporate sponsorship of Prides has taken a lot of that, the fun and the weirdness out of parade, pride parades, and also has really diluted the political agenda of pride parades. Um, so I'm, I feel pretty critical of the corporatization of parades, of pride parades, but I still think that as a coming together as a public celebration and, and a way for people to be visible and see each other. It's a really important and fun way to do that. Um, also, you know, thinking Secret Love, actually one of our first events as a collective was to host a giant contingent in Denver Pride, Denver's, I think it was 2017 parade, um, where we had over a hundred people march with us with homemade signs and outfits and all of these just like, really fun things and i think that we were one of the only non-affiliated float contingents if you will like we weren't you know a paint store or bank of america right. um we were just people in denver doing our thing and that was a really fun experience um but since then the cost of marching in the parade is so expensive that we can't really afford to do that just for fun now. So I will say the, also the parade that was organized, it wasn't really a parade, it was a march, organized on Sunday um, by Black Lives Matter and Denver Dyke March, um, was a, a wonderful reminder of what the core of a pride parade should be, which is 
marching in solidarity and also really talking about the politics and where we need to go as queer people and allies. Um, so that was a, a really wonderful thing to have attended. Awesome. Yeah. I, you know, what are your thoughts on the impact of COVID-19 on, on Pride Month? You know, I actually think that it's really great that because the Pride Parade was forced, the you know, the, the official Denver Pride Parade was forced to go online this year, that it left the space open for other people with different agendas to organize something. I think that that is, you know, with a huge parade already being planned, it's a lot harder to kind of get your own message in. And I, I think that it was actually, uh, it was great that that space was used, was able to be used by other people. Um, Seems like it goes back to the core values of everything. Well, I mean, yeah, the, as the slogan goes, like Stonewall, the first, the first parade was a riot. And I think, you know, if you historically actually look back, the first pride was the year after Stonewall to celebrate what happened in Stonewall. But Stonewall has been horribly whitewashed and has the, I think the assimilationist values of queer politics have taken over. And so I think this was a great reminder this year to remember that pride, if we're gonna talk about pride as a political platform, really needs to be intersectional and it needs to be about the most marginalized members of our community. Awesome, yeah. Um, as someone who identifies as trans and non-binary using they, them, theirs pronouns, how does art help tell your story? Hmm, I think I recently had a conversation with another trans artist who messaged me on Instagram and just asked, what is the responsibility of the trans artist to address trans issues in their art? And my response to them was, I don't think that there's an inherent responsibility about address addressing any of your personal identities in your artwork. And in fact, many marginalized artists, every time their artwork is seen, can be seen through this lens of whatever that viewer is projecting onto that identity. So I think that things can get really muddied there. However, I certainly do address issues of gender in my work very um, consciously. And especially when it comes to the body and relationships between bodies or with the self and the body, a lot of my work is focusing on touch and connection and interaction, both physically between the viewer and the art object, but also between, you know, the sometimes between the pieces of art themselves. I like to make them touch or kind of put them in community. But I also think that a lot of my work is a rumination on what it means to have a body and what is it like to have a body in the world and what if your body is, is a quote unquote, another air quotes here, othered body. Um, and, and what is it like to live in the world that way? So, you know, I think I've always been, a, I guess you could say a creative person. And so art, is just the way for me to have these conversations um, versus, you know, if I was a, a writer or a singer songwriter or something like that. Um, but I, I will also say, I think there's a connection between my, you know, sort of craft background and DIY aesthetic is this kind of like, you know, what is the correlation between a DIY gender and a DIY sculpture? So while I was, went to school for craft and material studies, that's what my degree is in. I was actually trained in metalsmithing and then kind of transitioned to, to fiber and am mostly self-taught in that. So I think there's sort of these like parallel paths between me learning these techniques and skills of working with fiber 
and also sort of my gender journey, if you will. Yeah. Was it easy for you to express yourself through your art about this journey or did you have to, or was it in fact a journey to, to go from, you know, just making artwork to making artwork that reveals something about yourself? You know, to, to answer the second part of that question, I don't think it was really a journey. I never consciously shifted my work, you know, in the way that I was thinking, now I'm going to talk about personal issues. That's sort of always been present in artwork for me. And I think that's what drew me towards art, you know, from a young age, even in high school. Um, and I, I think that my identities and just like position in the world have always been, it's the lens that I look through and it's the way I experience the world and that's why I make art. Um, so in that regard, I think that's always been part of why I make art. Um, and now I've forgotten the first part of your question. <laughs> uh, was, it, was it easy for you to express yourself through the artwork? Um, you know, not as much when I was working with metal. Metal has... It's cold. Just, it's cold. It's, it's um, very... Yeah, it's not very relatable in a lot of ways. And also, I was, you know, first trained in welding and more sculptural metalwork, I guess you could say, and then transitioned to jewelry scale. So metal smithing, much finer um, techniques. And uh, I think also the jewelry world and sort of the metals community that's part of that wasn't very easy for, for me to fully express myself in because I also was never interested in making jewelry. And a lot of the conversation was very limited to jewelry and wearable objects. And I was making these contraptions that you stuck your hands into and your fingers into and your head into. And galleries literally, you know, they're used to showing fine brooches, but they don't know how to have an interactive sculpture in their gallery. Um, so I had a, a bit of trouble trying to figure out my relationship to the metals world and showing metalwork. Um, but also the conversations that have been being had in the fibers world are much different. So there's much more conversation about materiality and the history of materiality and the history of marginalized labor and all of these things and queerness very much. There's a, a very strong conversation about contemporary fiber work and queerness. And I think that all kind of drew me to working with fiber so that I could join those conversations too. Awesome. Well, I will say your, your hand motions, nobody can see you, but your hand motions <laughs> when you were describing the, um, the interactive metal work, the sculptures, I was like, they were making torture devices <laughs> and that's what i spent a good eight or nine seconds thinking about was torture devices and i was like okay i'm into that i don't know how you uh, show that at a, at a gallery though <laughs> that's yeah they they weren't torture devices but but i think there was a tortured element to them in the sense that they were very much about again relationships and connectivity so they were devices that you could two people could stick their fingers into opposite, but either, you know, but never touch or always be held an inch apart from each other. Or, um, or I made sort of a line of sculptures that you could stick your hand into and potentially find somebody else's hand inside from another, you know, they had put their hand in from another entry point. And a lot of that was about, you know, um, hidden relationships or taboo relationships or you know what is it like to be visibly queer and and how do people react to a visibly queer relationship on the street or in a public space um i think that so in in a way there are these sort of socially or relationally tortured elements to those for sure awesome so do you have any advice for um, other artists who may be struggling with their own identity or ways to tell their own story? It's a heavy question. You know, 
the yeah <laughs> the advice i i think there's there's sort of two frameworks that i think through if i'm making very personal work and one of them is always that you can make that work just for yourself you don't all you i think there can be a lot of pressure if you are making something for show or for display um that you maybe aren't ready to have on display or maybe you're not ready for people to react to it or for people to ask you questions about it so you can always make things for yourself just for the joy of making them and having them um, I also think that sometimes when things are so personal, they don't transition easily into the world. So I've definitely made artworks where it, they represented one thing to me in the studio and something else on a gallery wall. And again, I think there's an element of, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's okay to protect yourself. So it's okay to make things and, and not be ready to talk about them and maybe think before you decide to display something that's so personal. I also think that if you can find, distill the idea down to the core nugget of truth, if you will, those can make for some of the most successful sculptures or uh, successful art pieces. And so for me, when I think about, there's a, a piece I made that was actually one of the first fiber-based pieces that I ever made for display. And it was when I moved to Denver, I was doing a residency at Platform. And Platform is an amazing local organization. They actually, that was the opportunity that brought me to Denver and I decided to move here. And they were supporting artists who explore something in their practice that they don't always have the opportunity to explore, which was music to my ears because I was sort of trying to transition out of this metalworking realm that I was in. Anyway, long story short, I, was, I proposed that I was gonna do a whole fiber-based show. And I had these knittings, these knitted posters, I call them. So they have text on them in different colors. And I had been knitting for about five years and it was just things that I had heard on the radio, books I was listening to, songs I was listening to, shows I was watching, snippets of text, things from horoscopes and stuff like that. And I had been holding on to these pieces for five years and hadn't known what to do with them and had never thought about them as an art piece, but really they were just me distilling the culture and the things that I was consuming into little tiny art pieces and I compiled all of those so about five years worth of knitting into this one giant knitted wall quilt um, at platform and it was a very personal piece because it happened to kind of line up with my medical transition as well so I started knitting kind of around the same time that I started taking hormones and then just kept going and so there's sort of this documentation of time and my own, I guess, digestion of gendered message, messages that were coming in around me. And they're so simple. And the simpleness of that is what makes the piece powerful because it's things that we all hear or we all are consuming, but maybe not paying attention to. So what I'm trying to say by that is if you can distill those thoughts down to their the simplest roots that they have it also that piece can transcend yourself and it can be a very personal piece and it can tell that story but it can be digestible on many levels and allow you also to engage with the viewer on lots of levels depending on your comfort zone awesome that's great advice if you know coming in a time where i think we're all a little raw and we're all a little unsure of the world around us. I think paying attention to yourself and allowing yourself to protect yourself at times is really important. Definitely. Yeah. So the, the current protests that are obviously going on, they've brought up a lot of, um, a lot about the role art can play in activism. Do you think that, do you think about that in any, any way while you're in the studio? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, thinking about the pandemic too, I never thought I would have skills that were appropriately, you know, designed specifically for a moment like this. So, and sewing, you know, historically also is such an amazing skill to have and gives you a lot of agency and historically has given people a lot of agency in their lives, being able to bring in money from that skill or, you know, just simply fashion the things that they need throughout their lives or days. Um, so I certainly think about that. Also having a DIY kind of slant on my practice, I think art is a necessary thing in the world and also is a, is a fantastic tool. Um, I think that the art world as well needs to wake up to some of these conversations and address some of the ways that art isn't being used in the most helpful ways. Um, you know, talk about wealth redistribution and art collecting. But I, I do think that the protests, and also, you know, having seen the recent murals that are going up throughout Civic Center Park and the way that that visually impacts the momentum of these protests that have been going on for weeks, these are some of the longest ongoing daily protests that I remember in my life. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like this. And I've, you know, been to plenty of protests throughout my life. So I, I think that the way that art is aiding and elevating the, both the visuals of the protests and also amplifying some of the voices in the community is really important. Also, I do whole bodies of work that document things, you know, slogans on protest signs. So I think that those those things matter and they're going to stick around for a long time awesome frankie i've been sitting here nobody can see you but you have the most amazing shirt on i want to <laughs> know more about the shirt because i just see george michael and yeah. the head's cut off but the earring is right. there freddie yeah. mercury yep we've Liberace. got little richard um little richard. dracula, dracula. <laughs> where, where, yeah this is where does the shirt come from Right. It's awesome. <laughs> right, it is. It is awesome. So it's um, a shirt from Wacky Wacko. So okay. one of my favorite artists, contemporary artists, is Peggy Nolan, who uh, is a fashion designer and also, you know, other creative. Um, and she had or has, I think they, they still have this clothing line called Wacky Wacko. That is her and another artist, Seth Bogart, who's in the Bay Area. Peggy Nolan's kind of from what I understand, splits her time between Kansas City and LA. Um, and yeah, it's a shirt, it's a wacky wacko shirt. I've had a crush, art crush on on this brand for, probably this was the only brand I would ever say, or at least until about a year ago that I have an art crush on. Um, but yeah, they're wonderful. Everything that wacky wacko does is really cool. Awesome, what? I just had to ask. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this shirt is amazing. It's so, one of my favorites. <laughs> awesome, well, last question. What are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to? I am going to see my parents in about a week and I am so excited to go see some family. Um, I'll be going to Southwest Colorado. So getting out of the city is a huge thing that I'm also looking forward to, obviously. I want to be really careful and respect all the other communities in the mountains and things that, you know, obviously don't want folks to bring germs. But uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out of the city because my world has gotten very small and I need to expand it a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. Any, any big projects coming up that you want to share? Um, yes. I mean, the, the biggest thing is that installation at storeroom i'm still working on the official dates of when that's going to happen but i think it should be up by mid to late august and then stay up through october so that's really exciting and i'm making it's a installment the most recent installment of the queer garden um, where things start in an orderly flower garden and then the sculptures get bigger and bigger and wilder and wilder and the garden takes over um so I'm, I'm working on that pretty much nonstop until then and 
right now that's the only show that I know, you know, that what the timeline is. He's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but yeah, you know, I'm excited for that for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. We're, we'll, we'll get back to a time where we can actually set dates and realistically yeah. meet them and uh, yeah. be able to go out in the world and not worry about, harming other people but uh, we're again just gonna we're gonna come out on the other side and this is gonna be an amazing amazing reflection you remember that time five years ago and the world seemed like it was on fire every three seconds so yeah i mean how much art is gonna come out of this i'm excited to see that yeah i think um just creative people are just working nonstop just because that's mm -hmm. how they, they get through everything. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, Frankie, I appreciate your time. It was a great conversation. I look forward to, to meeting you in person, um, yes. you know, on the other side of this. And I'm going to go look that shirt up on the internet right now. <laughs> so, Perfect. Um, yeah. Thank you, Rob. It's always, it's a pleasure to talk about art and creativity in this time. So I really appreciate your time as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you have a good one. You too. Right, thanks. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode. Remember, you can find links and images from today's guest on our website, remcad.edu forward slash remotely creative. And don't forget to submit your questions for us by emailing remotelycreative at remcad.edu. That's R-M-C-A-D dot E-D-U. Make sure to subscribe to Remotely Creative wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Special thanks to our team here, Gretchen Marie Schaefer, Chris Daly, Mel Kern, Josh Smith, and Madeline Austin for making today's episode possible. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.